the human brain is just not designed to work the way we've been working it. Welcome back, episode eight. <laughs> if you do those things, then you'll have a good conversation, but that's not how it works. Miscommunication in offices around the world leads to delayed projects, frustrated colleagues, and missed sales. This can be avoided. There's fascinating research that gives insight into how to have creative dialogues and clear conversations in the office and at home. Full of practical tips, insightful research, and inspiring guests, this is Clarity in Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. And welcome back again to Clarity in Conversations, episode 8 this week. Before we start, we look back on the last episode and the interview with Mika Coupé. That one became the most downloaded episode of this whole series so far, and it boosted the number of listeners across the world. Clarity in Conversations is listened now in 39 countries, mainly in the US, the UK and the Netherlands. But then also we have listeners in Uganda, Russia, Nigeria and Egypt. I'm pretty proud of that. So if this is your first time listening, welcome on board to the podcast that gives you great tips to improve the clarity of your dialogues in the office and at home. In the last interview with Mika Coupé, I spoke about vulnerability, which originates from fear that is holding us back. So fear is holding us back in being truthful. But in the end, fear is just stories in your head. And your stories in your head are not always the most positive stories. Now, when we're courageous, we dare to speak up and accept the consequences of doing so. Without knowing what will be the result, without knowing the outcome. So the central message was, have the courage to speak up and accept that that sometimes puts you in a vulnerable position. That's a good thing, actually. Now on to this week. Since the start of this series, there was one person I wanted to have as a guest. Celeste Hadley. And with a bit of persistence, I succeeded and was so happy to speak with her about clarity in conversations. Celeste Hadley is not only a trained classical soprano in opera singing, we talked to her today about journalism. She's a journalist, an interviewer and a radio host. Celeste started as a journalist and radio host first as, at local stations in, in Flagstaff, Arizona and also in Detroit. And later she started at the National Public Radio hosting several morning show programs. Celeste has won numerous awards for her radio shows and for the quality of the interviews she did. Her 2014 TED talk 10 ways to have a better conversation is hilarious and has been watched more than 20 million times by now. I myself watched it many times and I would recommend it to anybody to listen to it and watch it after this podcast, of course. Celeste then became the author of a book called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. And from this, it's clear why I wanted to speak with her. Celeste is all about having better conversations. Reason to speak to her today is that she has a new book out called Do Nothing. How to break away from overworking, overdoing and underliving. And we'll speak about that in the later part of the interview. But why talk to Celeste on having great conversations? Well, as a journalist and interviewer, she found out that many of the standard tips for great conversations don't work. So she started out finding out herself what works and what doesn't. And those lessons are remarkable. She didn't learn conversations in school, but she found out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you go to schools and 
they are constantly teaching you how to be a better public speaker. You can find all kinds of classes in public speaking, but you just don't find any on how to be a better conversationalist or listener for gosh sake. And that's the, the thing that people struggle with the most is listening. So yeah, I had to sort of start from scratch. I mean, the other thing is, is that when I began that research, when I began that research, um, I found the same advice that everybody else has gotten for a long time, which is, maintain eye contact and nod your head and sum up what you just heard and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was in this particular situation as a, the host of a show, a radio show where I could test that out, right? I could um, go into my studio every day and say, okay, for the next few weeks, I'm going to uh, sum up what I just heard and see if that makes things better. Um, so I could test each, each one of those bits of advice out. And what I learned was that not only did they, generally not make things better. They usually made things worse. Um, so I really had to start from scratch because if the advice we'd been getting for so long doesn't work, then I really had to sort of hit the books to find out what would. Right. And, and, and did you find out on the way why that advice doesn't work? I mean, it sounds so, so obvious, right? Summarize what the other person said, look them in the eye. Yeah, but you know what I think, here's what I think happened. I think that experts watched people having good conversations and they noticed that when people were having a really good conversation, they nodded their heads and they said, uh-huh, and they gestured with their hands and summarized what people said. And so they thought, they thought you could reverse engineer it. And, and if you do those things, then you'll have a good conversation, but that's not how it works. Those things are the things that happen naturally when you're having a conversation without you thinking about them. Right. As soon as you start focusing on them, it distracts you completely from your main job, which is to listen. Um, and it means that you just, you don't have the mental bandwidth to pay attention to what you're really supposed to be doing. If you are truly listening and truly engaged, you will do all those things naturally. Mm. That sounds very recognizable because if in trainings we learn people how to do these things, then they get so much focused on having eye contact and summarizing what the other said is that, that, that it all sounds artificial, right? That's exactly right. And it, artificial is a really good way to phrase it because um, it becomes inauthentic. What, what you're basically doing is performing listening. <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm going to act as though I am listening instead of actually listening. And the truth is listening takes so much focus and attention. It really can be so difficult that we need all of our energy uh, funneled into listening and not pulled in any other directions. Yeah, yeah. It's like you said in the TED Talk, there's no need to show you're paying attention when in fact you are yeah, exactly. paying attention, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. really convincing <laughs> when you exactly. do that. Now, Celeste, you, you, you've been interviewing loads of guests on your radio talk shows on all kinds of occasions where you interview people. And in your book, you state that ranges from heads of state to plumbers to truck drivers to nurses to politicians. Everybody came by. Um, and it must have happened multiple times that although you, you, you would love to listen, you just don't find it interesting what they're, what they're telling you. Yeah, I think that's true, um, obviously. And my, literally, my job is to find a way to make it interesting to me, right? To become interested. And I think that's, that was really the best training I could get in asking good questions. Because 
sometimes the questions I'm asking are just not interesting. Mm. <laughs> and and so I, I, I went from the point of view of if this person is not interesting me, then I'm not asking the right questions. And it, if you if you come from that sort of place, which is basically a place of curiosity, right? Um, then it, it completely changes the dynamic of the conversation. So for example, we'll go into a important meeting with the boss or something, and we'll focus only on what it is that we wanna say. We don't focus on what it is we wanna hear from the other person or what questions we need to ask. So by sort of flipping that, that around, to put the onus on me, it, it really changed the conversations. I mean, it's just a matter of if what they're saying is not interesting, I haven't dug deep enough. That's a different mindset, really, right? It's, it's it to, really is. It, yeah, it, it, it's to say, it, it's my job to make it interesting. It, it, they don't have to be interesting. It's my job to, to get there. Yeah, and even more so, just to take it one step further, they are interesting. Everyone has interesting things to say. I mean, that's the secret. That's what I learned, is that everybody has in entertaining stories and interesting things and um, areas of expertise, stuff they know really well that I would find fascinating. But if I'm not finding it, then I need to work harder. Mm, yeah. And you find it by asking the right questions. You said, you said a couple of moments ago, I really, I really noticed what kind of questions work and what kind of questions don't work. Can you give an example of what type of questions typically kills a conversation and what kind of questions really opens it up? Yeah, I mean, in general, a closed question is going to kill the conversation. So I'll give you a couple examples of questions that are, don't work. The closed ones are the ones where... They're usually longer and they usually involve you guessing at the answer. So like I would say, hey, what time are you coming over tonight? Six? No, you have that thing at, at 5.30. So, and then you're going to hit traffic. Pro I'm guessing you probably won't be home till seven, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've just turned that into a yes or no <laughs> question. Right. Um, uh, and, and we do that a lot recently. And I think part of that comes from our our fear of letting go of control of a conversation. Um, if we are, if we leave a question open, what you're doing is allowing the other person to really come up with an answer and an answer in any way they like. Uh, but it also means we have to get rid of, we have to let go um, and stop worrying about whether we are in control or not. Um, the other kind of question that doesn't work is the one that is aimed at turning attention back toward us. And I talk about this a lot. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon that sociologists describe as conversational nar narcissism. And, oh. and yeah, basically it's the fact that we are quite creative at turning conversations back to the subject that we know the most about and with which we are most comfortable, which is ourselves. So um, he talked about the difference between switch uh, and support, shift and support. So if you say to me, hey, I have to do this podcast interview, um, if I'm gonna shift attention back to myself, I'd say, oh, you know, I'm doing a podcast interview uh, tomorrow. I'm really nervous about it, right? I've completely shifted focus. But if I were supporting you, I would say, oh, that's really interesting. Who are you talking to? So those kind of questions uh, or responses also will shut down a conversation if you're constantly turning them back. And I know people also do this without realizing it. it's a very unconscious, for most people, it's an unconscious habit. 
so it can be hard to break. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we bend a lot of conversations towards our own um, uh, sphere of interest rather than staying connected to the other person. Exactly so. Yeah, that was a closed question, I realized. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, You've you've said in your in your chat talk um, something that really fascinated me, which, which is that you said being smart really stands in the way of having a great conversation, and and that kind of triggered me. I thought, how does that work? Yeah, so this is surprising to a lot of people that um, odds are that as your IQ goes up, the worse your conversational skills, and there's a few reasons for this. So I'll just walk you through um, two or three of them. The first one is that when you're smart, you know a lot. <laughs> and so um, you tend to go into conversations ready to tell people all the interesting stuff that you know. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that we know through research that subconsciously, when you are talking to someone, your mind instantly makes a judgment about whether you think that person is of lower rank than you or less smart than you hmm. and if they are either of those things you don't listen to them <laughs> your brain stops listening right. um so obviously that gets in the way of conversation there's a couple other reasons one is that uh, people who are smart tend to bring logic they think that a converse they can logic their way out of any disagreement or discussion and conversations are are essentially emotional and social activities, not logical. Um, and then the, the last one is that the smarter that you are, the, the less likely you are to listen, partly because you assume you know what the other person is gonna say. So you'll get into a conversation and someone will start talking. You subconsciously, again, th think you already know where they're going. So yeah, and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I really, you know, what I'm really trying to tell you is this, right? You'll, you'll cut them off because yeah. you, yeah. You assume you know where that sentence is going. So yeah. there really are a lot of things working against you. So conversations between smart people apparently are harder. Think about that for a moment. Smart people know a lot and they love to talk about their subject. They know so much about it, so they focus on talking and sending rather than a two-way conversation. Also, smarter people find other people less smart, so they engage less in conversations. And they also rely more on logic, making conversations harder. And finally, the smarter you are, the less good you listen because you think you already know what the other person is going to say. The lesson here? It's not that smart people cannot have good conversations, but they need to put a little bit more effort to balance the conversation and bring in great listening. Balancing talking and listening. That's a central theme in this podcast by now. Balancing the effort of the sender and the receiver. But it's not either or, according to Celeste. I guess I don't really think of it in either one of those ways. I always, the, the comparison I always make is that you should see the conversation as a game of catch, which I, perhaps is closer to the sending, receiving, but it also requires interaction. Because if you're playing catch with someone, you're you're purposely throwing the ball in a way that the other person can catch it, hmm. right? I mean, it's not fun anymore if they can never get the ball and they're always chasing it. Right. So each person is invested in the other person's success. But the other thing is, is that there's always an even balance. You literally can't throw the ball more than you catch it. 
So um, I think that's the better model for conversation. And in a way that combines both the send, receive and the interaction. I mean, they're both necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's both. The interaction yeah. between the two of us is important, but also the game of sending a clear message and picking it up by listening skills. Exactly yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Listening skills, that's the topic that was with big letters on the top of my interview list for today. Uh, because you've said a lot about that in, in your in your book, but also in the TED talk. And and basically you say more than speaking clearly and and having great things to say, listening is so hard for many of us. Why is yeah. that? Well, it's it's funny. A lot of people are ready to blame that on technology, but I can reassure you, human beings, I mean, homo sapiens, our species is just not great at listening. Um, you know, there are a lot of species that are born needing to listen carefully, right? Their survival depends on hearing it. But if you think about it, the human beings, a human baby doesn't survive by what they hear. A human baby survives because if they're in trouble or in distress, they scream loud enough that a, an adult comes and helps them. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the skill we have. <laughs> that's the skill we have. Um, that's and, a survival it, skill, right? It absolutely is. Shout loud and the help will come. All right. If we, if we hear danger coming and we're an infant, there is nothing we can do about it. That is not helpful. Um, you know, it's interesting. The guy named Ralph, Dr. Ralph Nichols, who is known as the father of listening, he did the seminal work into listening among homo sapiens, among our species. And he was working in the middle of the 20th century. So pre predating smartphones for sure. Um, and his takeaway was that human beings just aren't great listeners. It, it's hard for us. I mean, he found that immediately after you listen to a like a 10 minute speech, you only retain half of it. Within like a, a few days, you've lost 75% of it. And as you get further and further away, it's all gone. It, now you may think you remember what you heard, but by that point, you don't, your memory of it is so completely distorted. It's not really all the time what you heard. So we struggle to do it. It requires energy. Yeah. How did you do that in, in most of the interviews you've done? Uh, for, for example, especially when you're on live TV or live radio, I can imagine that you're troubled with a lot of other things at the same time and, and not only listening, right? You have to think about the sound, about the signals you get from an editor, from a producer, what have you. There's so much going on around you. How have you learned to really switch on... Uh, on, on your listening skills and stay with the conversation and stuff? It really is uh, important to think of it as a discipline and something that you have to practice. You know, I, um, I use mindfulness meditation, which works very well for me because at heart, uh, mindfulness meditation is just teaching you pay attention to your breath. And when a thought comes in, let the thought go and return to your breath, right? That's, that's basically mindfulness meditation in a nutshell. Yeah. And what you're really doing through that is you're teaching your brain how to let go of distractions and return to focus. Right. And it takes, it really is a discipline. Um, and it's something I still work at all the time, but you can train your mind to um, regain focus and you can train it to do it over and over. And because as you say, when you're on live radio, you've got two or three computer screens up. There are people sending you messages, constant, constant. So you really have to sort of 
um, over and over and over return to the thing that you're supposed to be focused on. It's hard. It's really hard. But you say an essential thing. It's, it's learnable, you say. Yeah, absolutely. Your mind is absolutely trainable. Um, and honestly, I think if you, it, it's not a huge amount of investment. If you put in five or five or 10 minutes a day, just doing what I said, just sitting there, closing your eyes and, and paying attention to your breath, you will get better at it. It really is that simple. The best news of today, your mind is really trainable. Simple meditation skills or short mindful reflection can help your mind to become much better at focusing on what you're doing. I try it myself, frequently and consistently, and I find it hard, honestly, but I find also it really helps. Now, given Celeste's focus on mindfulness and embracing the moment, it's no coincidence that Celeste's new book promotes stepping back from the treadmill of work and reflecting on wh why you're doing it and how you approach your job. The book is called Do Nothing. And the obvious question on that is, why this title? Yeah, so when I finished my, my last book, We Need to Talk, I had some questions remaining about conversation. And one of them was, if conversation is so good for us, and it is mentally, physically, extremely good for us, and if it's more efficient than any kind of text communication we could use, um, letter writing, emailing, whatever. And it is, even though we think emails are more efficient, they're not in general. Why do we keep avoiding conversation? This was a big question for me. And so I started researching that at why, how we have come to believe that talking to someone on the phone is one of the least efficient methods of communication when it is a fact, number one, most efficient. And when I started researching that, I discovered there's actually a ton of things that we do that we think are more efficient and are saving us time and making us better. And when you actually look at it in the light of day and do scientific tracking, they're wasting our time and making us miserable. And I began to discover a pattern of behavior. Um, and it just led to this whole three year research project on what, what has happened and when did it sort of go wrong. That's fascinating. I mean, when you describe it, you sound more like a researcher than a journalist. So you started digging deep into this question, like, what is it that makes us turn away from good conversations, right? Yeah. And, you know, more like an investigative journalist, right? Like I really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> had to um, do some deep, deep diving. And I mean, I ended up in unexpected places. I had to interview paleontologists and evolutionary biologists and really get to sort of the source of this, you know, it's the source of what's causing so many people to burn out, the source of this feeling that so many people have that they are overwhelmed and tired and don't have enough hours in the day. Um, and I found it. It's just, it ha it's, we are ready to, we are ready to blame it on technology and it's not tech's fault. Um, it actually started hundreds of years ago and we've just sort of leaned into a certain pattern of behavior generation after generation after generation until here we are in the US at least, our uh, life expectancy has gone down for three years in a row. And they asked the, uh, one of the doctors, the lead author on the study, why that is and he said, despair. Really? Yeah. 
yeah. If you, if you connect that to, to the title of your book, that, that's a big message you're giving. You're not just saying we need to be better listeners or so. You're saying for, for our well-being, for our health, for the way we are connected to other human beings, it's essential that we start working in a different way. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. I mean, it, it becomes fairly um, broad reaching. At one point, I you know, Noam Chomsky uh, said that we don't know that human beings have been around for such a short period of time. We don't actually know if they're a viable species. Now, he was talking about global warming, um, but I, I think it's true even when you look at our habits. I think we're being self-destructive. That's how serious it is. And we have to make a choice. We have leaned into some very unhealthy and frankly unhuman habits for at least 250 years and we have to stop. So that's a huge claim and a, and a huge subject for you to dive into. It's, it's a, as you say in the book, it's, it's we're, we're sabotaging our well-being. We put work aside. Now, now what we should do is start living instead of doing. Yeah, so, start being instead of always becoming. Right. What's the biggest tip in that respect that you would have for, for especially managers who are listening, who are working in this very busy work environment in which there's constant pressure, constant questions, constantly people reaching out to you? So the main thing I would, I would say is that, um, especially for managers, you have to let go of this idea that longer hours on the job actually produces more. There's just no evidence of it. And I don't mean evidence recently with knowledge workers. I mean, going back to the 19th century, we found that once you work a human past a certain number of hours, uh, it's literally counterproductive. Their productivity goes down. So at one point in the 50s, um, 1950s, they followed a, a large group of scientists as they went about their their weekly work and they found that the least productive of the entire group were those who worked more than 50 hours a week and the most productive only went into work like somewhere between 12 and 20 hours a week mm -hmm. so this idea that more hours on the job equals a better worker better employee is absolutely not only killing your people but killing your productivity and that includes making a clean break come whatever your your quitting time is 5 p.m. and on the weekends as well you have to allow your workers to be away from work you can't be sending them emails on the weekend or at nine o'clock at night you can't be expecting them to respond to a text um, at you know 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning you have to let them be free of the office wow that's a big thing it is it is, but it's really, really important. The human brain is just not designed to work the way we've been working it. Now, maybe the, the, the last question I have about that is then about your own experience on that, Celeste, because you are quite busy yourself. You're hosting radio shows. You're, you're doing so many things that the whole introduction of your accomplishments already is a podcast. <laughs> how, how do you juggle that? Well, I didn't. You know, that's partly <laughs> where this book came out is I reached a point in my life where I was so busy that I was just getting sick all the time. And so in a way, this the new book, uh, Do Nothing, is me trying to fix myself and then discovering it wasn't just me. It was us 
we're all doing this to ourselves. And so, yes, I have since then, you know, after three years of research, I, I, I found some answers and I have implemented them. Now, I got to tell you, I'm no less um, productive. I finished two books in three years. I feel that's pretty productive. And as you say, I do all these other things, but I have, I have made space in my schedule for at least seven hours of sleep every night and sitting around and doing nothing sometimes, sitting on my front porch and talking to my neighbors with a glass of beer or whatever it may be, I make sure that happens. Um, and I shut off my email, I shut off social media constantly. I sometimes go for a walk with my dog and leave my cell phone at home and I survive. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've started to pick up different habits um, that just make me happier and i'm healthy i haven't been sick in a long time sounds great what's your next big next uh, big project uh, celeste after the new book comes out um i have a few things i've i'm gonna be uh i've been working on some online training courses for people who want to uh learn like literally train themselves in either conversation or in the principles of of uh do nothing productivity <laughs> so that's as yeah. well I, and i have a, a podcast training course coming out on how to be a better public speaker i have a lot of training things you know that's one of the things i've learned is that people are really hungry to you know learn more and sort of really get some of these habits ingrained and so i'm i'm trying to lean into that and, and provide some stuff to people that will really help them learn it Help other people learn about great conversations, but then also about doing nothing. That was Celeste Hadley. Find her TED Talk, 10 Ways to Have Better Conversations, and find the book she wrote. I can highly recommend them. So time now, like in every podcast, to reflect back on the main interview with Els de Meijer, researcher communication and innovation at Fontes University of Applied Science in the Netherlands. Els this time clearly thought about how to apply Celeste Hadley's lessons into her own life. Yeah, I, I really like listening to it, but I have to say I nearly switched it off and not because I didn't like it, but because I was too embarrassed. <laughs> I, I seriously, almost everything she said at the start on bad listeners, I was like, yep, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not a good listener. And it's, it's terrible because I, I don't know. I was thinking back about all the podcasts we did together and, and me having to listen in my professional environment and I just yeah. thought, yep, that's me as well. And 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 the narcissistic um, the narcissistic conversation. Anyway, so then once I got past that <laughs> it was confrontational it for was, you. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I felt like I really had a lot of um, things I should work on then. But, you know, we I'm, I'm teaching myself to be mild and stuff as well. So it will it will it will happen and I will work on it at some point. Um, but I have to say, so I was a bit um, well, shocked is maybe not a good word, but I was she was very stern on the effects of um, our communication and our lack of communication on society, I think. Yeah. So she yeah. was very um, you said it yourself as well. She was very straightforward about it. It was kind of hard and almost um, very negative claims, I think, on, on the impact um, the way we interact with each other has on society. Right, yeah. Um, and um, I do un I do believe she, she's right about it because I see it in my own behavior and I've, I 
don't know where I picked it up, but there's a great metaphor, I think, on how, for example, we deal with emails um, on your phones, you know, like if, if you have your phone, you just, um, you know, you pull you pull your screen down with yeah. your finger, you slide down and you then you wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get that wheel turning and then ta-da, you get your new message. It's, it's like addictive. Right? It is because yeah. it's it's like a slot machine almost, you know, it's like, right. It's yeah. like you, you just wait for the like the, the jackpot to come in or it's like the one arm bandage. You pull the lever and the next thing you just get something. That's what the modern office is. It's like Las Vegas, right? It's it's ter- I, th- right. I really think it's it's depressing, but it's um, I, I'm just a bit afraid that that's how it's is it designed like that? Because it's so addictive like that, I think, you know, well, there's. Now, now that you say that, yeah, there's a lot by design, right? I mean, th- there's former people who've worked at Microsoft who who told us how how apps are designed, meant to make you addicted right. to coming back to them all the time and, and maximizing your time on them. Yeah, yeah, it's I I I get a bit scared, I think, because of that or or realizing that. On the other hand, to look at it a bit more positively once you realize that's how it works it's the first step in in changing your behavior of course yourself you know it's all down to us ourselves to to change that behavior so um maybe we shouldn't see it as something really depressing and negative and and see it as an opportunity and and maybe the first step to change our own attitudes you know what is only yeah. one thing we can do and that's change ourselves in that and that's also what i heard celeste basically say mm. is, is is that it's our um, it's very liberating to free yourself from that constant yeah, addiction exactly. every now and then. Yeah. Um, but you need your awareness first. So right. And and yeah. maybe that metaphor or that that image of of the slot machine is 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 a very strong image to get people to kind of turn around. <laughs> it's uh, powerful a one. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. The last thing I I remarked there is, <clears throat> and that is uh, is more. I think other people that you spoke to have that as well. But especially I thought about listening listening to her, is. Um, our tendency and our uh, how well we are at at um, or how good we are at uh, at talking rather than listening that we're kind of pre-designed to talk you know right. she used the baby the crying baby and everything um, and I always have to think uh, about how that makes like a message like that how that makes people that are kind of introvert feel because they do not have this inclination to speak up as much and I always wonder if you say that people, you know, that speaking up is something we do and that we're good at. Uh, good at. I I don't think that counts for everyone, and I'm. It's something I think we will come back later on, probably, mm, yeah. and maybe later on in an, in another podcast we can talk about this a bit more. But I I don't know if this counts for everyone and how that makes people that do not have a natural inclination to to speak up and to to be extrovert how that makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And that's Els de Meijer, researcher, communication and innovation at Fontes University of Applied Science. And as always, let's see now what we can do with today's wisdom in the context of your work. Three tips to bring more clarity into your conversations. Tip one. Don't answer people by telling them about your own experiences. Instead of reacting with a similar experience, ask a follow-up question. So when the other person in a conversation speaks about her holiday in Spain, don't say you went there too last year in May and that you went to Catalonia and that you loved it and blah, blah. Stop. Instead, react with asking them a simple question. What particularly did you like about Spain? 
Tip two. After listening to a 10-minute speech or monologue, you had best retain half of it. After a few days, 75% is gone. And in a few days more, all is gone. So the tip. Speak less. Keep your sentences short. It enhances the probability that someone else will remember what you said. Tip 3. Whether a conversation is interesting or not depends on you, not on whether the other person is interesting or not. Decide to be curious and interested. Then a conversation becomes interesting. And that brings us to the end of Clarity in Conversations for this week. Many thanks to Celeste Hadley for speaking about her new book Do Nothing and to Els de Meyer for her reflections. And then next time in Clarity in Conversations we're going to speak with Joe McCormack, author of the book Brief, who has great news for all of us who've been in meetings that lasted too long. Meetings are a source of noise for a lot of people. Yes, we have loads of bad meetings because of too much talking. What, what do people do after a bad meeting? They schedule another one. So what will be the lesson? Be brief. Well, you need to find a way to cut material that your audience doesn't care about. And Brief is also the title of Joe McCormack's book, which we will discuss at length next time in Clarity and Conversations. Thanks for listening to Clarity and Conversations, a podcast by Frank Garten. Clarity in Conversations is a podcast by me, Frank Garten. To further professionalize the podcast, I'm looking for a company active in the consultancy business to sponsor the podcast when we start with season two in June 2020. If you have suggestions for this, or you are the sponsor that wants to attach your name to Clarity in Conversations, I'd like to speak to you. Leave me a note then at frank at clarityinconversations.nl or find my contact details on frankgarten.com.